Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the CollectingCars.com podcast with Chris Harris and Edward Lovett. Hello, welcome to another Collecting Cars podcast. Now, you might hear some peripheral noise, background noise here, because uh, we're recording at Goodwood today um, with, um, with Sam Hancock, who is actually at and it's at Hancock underscore Sam yep. is, is both his Twitter and Instagram handle uh, and Edward Lovett who's at Edward Lovett um, uh, now we're down here because Sam is pretty much permanently based here because he's so embedded in this historic car racing world and we have another guest that we're going to record as well later on whose surname is Nadell you might have heard of him um, first name Tiff so um, thanks for coming along Sam um, pleasure now We've got many things we can discuss because you are so well embedded in this historic racing world now. I don't think I ever go to a circuit where there's a meeting on where you aren't present. You seem to be omnipresent everywhere. So can you just tell us a little bit about how you ended up becoming so yeah, so embedded in this world? I mean, yeah. it, it must be great for you because clearly it's your passion and you've turned your passion into your livelihood, which is a wonderful yeah. thing to do, isn't it? And that was always the dream, you know, and, and I was one of those kids that grew up with crazy dreams of, you know, Formula One World Championships and da-da-da. And as I climbed the ladder up from karting and then single-seaters, like so many of us, reality descends. And it's half a reality check on talent and large reality check on budget. And, and um, the viewer can't see this, but you're a tall bloke. And frankly, that doesn't yeah, help, does I, and, it? I, and I use that as an excuse yeah, often. I, I, I tell myself pretty much on a nightly basis that if I wasn't six foot two, I'd definitely have three World Championships <laughs> under my belt by now. Um, but... No, I, I, I kind of, you know, I was hell-bent on F1, and I grew up around racing because my dad raced at club level in classic Formula 4 2000 as a hobby, and you know, most weekends were spent on the grass bank at Brands watching Dad. You and know. did you resent that, or do you now think it was a cool thing to have done? What, to grow up watching? Yeah, because I, I think we all had fathers who, whose hobbies probably 
defined our social lives. My, my father was into cricket and hockey, so I, right. I spent most of my formative years right. sitting on the boundary, watching him not take wickets. Yeah. And, and I, a, a, a bit of a bit of me thinks I could have been doing something else. Yeah. What, what about you? No, so so I was the opposite, and and thank God my dad wasn't into cricket because I would have definitely been thinking I want to be doing something else. No, no, I, I loved every second of it, and. Um, I remember having a conversation probably over a very greasy burger at the van at, at Brands with Dad and a mate, probably about eight years old or something, and they said, you know, what do you want to do when you're old? And I said, well, I'm going to be doing this. Maybe we were watching the Formula Ford Festival or something at the time. I said, this, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a racing driver. And um, there's something very powerful about a child's naivety. And, and I remember, especially Dad's mate, who's who's been a great supporter and is a good friend but even he sort of said yeah but you know that's quite a big deal you've really got to devote your whole life to that and you know lots of money and how are you going to do that and these kind of conversations kept happening as I was getting a bit older and into my early teens and I just didn't it just wasn't a single other thing on the planet that I either wanted to do or could imagine myself doing. So you did karting single seaters then what was your first tin tops? Porsches or was it did you something before um, that? Um my first tin top was a complete blag actually. I was that's right. So my sort of single single seater career petered out. I'd won a few races. I did a bit of Formula Voxel Junior and and then the Formula Palm Rowdy thing. I don't yep. know if you remember that. It was sort of an equivalent. I did one of those. To, did you? Yeah. It was, it was brilliant. It was, it was Jonathan Palmer's creation. And he basically said, look, racing in the junior category is getting too expensive. And there's no way of telling who's really the best driver because everyone's cheating with engines in F3 and da, da, da. We're going to create an affordable single-make championship where there's only one team. It's the organization. That's the team. Drivers either win or they don't. And that, and that was brilliant because... We was that the original... Um, series you did the first yeah, series so I did the first or half the first year maybe all of the second year there was some big so like it was that. Justin Wilson all that lot Justin Wilson Darren Turner Robbie Kerr I mean crikey uh, there were there were loads Alan Siemenson um, which is obviously sad very sad um God, Jerome Bleakamolan. Yeah, yeah, there were some, some there serious, was some guys serious guys names, weren't yeah, there? Yeah, it was, it was great. And it gave a lot of us who had sort of cobbled the dosh together to maybe do the first rung of the ladder, Formula Ford, or in my case, Vauxhall Junior. You know, and I was very lucky because you could never have done it without family's help. But whilst mum and dad could afford to help me do maybe year one of Vauxhall Junior, maybe a bit of year two of whatever came next. It wasn't sustainable. That was going to be it. Yeah. And... Um, Palmer Audi came along. It was great. You know, I learned about marketing as well because it was sort of, I think it was 80 grand a year, which when you compare that to budgets today at that level, it's what, that's a, a fifth at least, maybe a sixth of what drivers need today. And Jonathan Palmer understood sponsorship and marketing. So he built in a really simple but really nice hospitality facility and nice brandy and good telly. And I wrote my first ever sponsorship proposal. Actually, the first ever one I wrote was in pencil on lined paper when I was in karting. <laughs> I had to update it for Palmer Audi and you know, sold weekend by weekend to different sponsors. And I had a, you know, a building company covering the car one weekend with 20 guests in the tent. And then I had, I think with the help of some friends, Fujitsu Siemens on the car the next weekend with 50 guests in the tent. And it was just enough to kind of make up the shortfall from, you know, obviously parents yeah. funding and but it taught me a bit about marketing yeah. in, in motor racing and, th and that it's much 
much much more about what you're doing outside the car, sadly, isn't it? At that level, you you got you have to assume you're going to perform in the car because you wouldn't be there otherwise. Yeah. But you've got to work flipping hard out of the car. You do to keep it going. You definitely have to do that. But I actually look back with with the benefit of hindsight and think. I spent too much time and energy worrying um, about the, the marketing side because at, at the time it seemed to me that all the all the chat, all the all the magazines and every, all the documentary, everything you watch and the people you speak to, it's like you got to be good with the sponsors, you got to be good yeah. on the marketing side, you have got to be presentable, etc. And there wasn't enough emphasis on well, actually, if you if you're basically the next center, you know, look at Kimi Raikkonen at that similar sort of era. You know, he came out of karts having dominated. He did a single year of Formula Renault, blitzed everybody. And went straight into F1. And so there wasn't enough emphasis on the fact that actually, yet yeah, do be good at the marketing stuff. But you know what? Talent. Yeah. Be, be, be quick. We'll be quick. Nothing, yeah. shouts, nothing yeah. shouts louder than smashing the opposition, does exactly. it? <laughs> exactly. So you, so you, and then you went, you went from there. That's right. So I did, so I did, so start from the beginning. So a bit of club level karting, yeah. Cambly Kart Club, Blackbush. I was always either a bit too fat or a bit too tall, but I won a few few races at club level and did a bit of British Championship stuff. Vauxhall Junior thing was when I started. So it started. I started to figure it out, and I had the first couple of podiums. Palmer Audi was first wins, and then from there, what did I say? I had no money. I went to America. Yeah. I went to try to apply my trade in the States. And I said to my mum and dad, I was 20, and I said, right, can you just buy me a one-way ticket to Daytona, to Orlando? And I'm not coming home until I've figured it out. And uh, ended up doing a bit of the Barber Dodge Pro Series out there. That was a disaster. Really quick in winter testing, and then I think I had someone that came from preparing horse and carriage as my mechanic. <laughs> that didn't last very so long. So when did you realise, this is the tough question, when did you realise that you weren't going to be Kimi Raikkonen? Uh, when, did, when did you accept it? The first time I, that, that thought ever entered my head was the evening after I won a race. And uh, someone very close to me was getting all excited. And they said, the thing is, though, you, you're obviously not a center, So, you know, we've got to figure out how we're going to do it. And I was like, what? What? What do you mean? Yeah. I never thought about that. I mean, obviously, <laughs> he was absolutely <laughs> right. And um, But it's just... It's like I said, there's something wonderfully powerful about a, a, a teenager's naivety. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't occur to you that you can't be the same as your heroes, the guys you've read about and watched all the, the videos and hung on their every word. So that was the first time I thought, ah, okay, maybe it's going to be a bit harder than So then I what thought. you have to do is you have to think about how, how do I continue to have a working life in this world of cars, yep. and I think that's what we've all done. Yep, no, I, exactly. I, I quickly realised I wasn't going to be certain things, and I just thought I yep. want to be around cars. Exactly. I love cars, old and new. What can I do to be among them? And so yep. you've carved your niche now. I had a few years of, of really scrabbling around, to yeah. be honest. So uh, after the Palmer Audi thing, I did a, you know, a bit part season in the Barber Dodge Pro Series in the states, which, which didn't come to anything. Um, and then I looked to sports cars, and I. I had a little bit of money left over and a little bit of sort of promised help financially and I just banged on the door of every single sports car team I could think of. Again, completely naive. When I think of the doors that I was banging on back then as a complete unknown, 
it's kind of embarrassing, you know, like straight to the factory teams, you should think of me, can I please have a test, and just being a real pain, and actually not realising at the time that I was being a real pain. But that's the way it worked. wanted something to You weren't the only one doing that, though, were you? That's the way it worked. No, you've got to do it, and um, in the end, Kramer Racing, Erwin Kramer, which now means everything to me as a a name, their history, and and I learnt, but at the time, I didn't, I wasn't into historic racing at all. I only cared about modern stuff. And Erwin Kramer replied to, I think it was email then, I'm quite old, maybe it was a, just a phone call, but he replied at last minute. He obviously was running out of money. There was sort of a couple of days left before the first race. And he said, if you can bring X, I'll stick you in the car at Barcelona this weekend. And this was an LMP1 or LMP900 or whatever it was called at the time. Lola, oh, B. B2K10 or something, I can't remember, B9810 or something, with a Roush V8 and sort of 650 horsepower, slicks wider than anything I'd ever seen in my life, and, um, and no testing. So he said, you know, uh, bring, bring a bit of, you know, change, pay me something, and you'll be driving with Ralph Kellner's of, you know, Le Mans factory Toyota driver fame from the GT1 era at Barcelona on Thursday. Uh, and I thought, uh-huh. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah, sure, Owen. Yeah, so how did, it, go, how did it work out? It was, it was the biggest revelation of my racing life in terms of understanding the difference between low-level cars and high-level cars. And it's what I'm telling all my clients in the historic racing world today. Don't be afraid of these high-level, quick racers because they're built to do that lap time. And yes, they've got more power than you're used to, They've got bloody great big tyres and bloody great big wings. And you know what? They're really well made and everything just works. And it took me... I remember standing in the back of the truck getting changed as they were warming the car car up before I drove it for the first time and honestly having a a little private moment with myself because it was was kind of scary. The noise, just the engine sounded so vicious. And then it took me one corner of the outlap to realise that this thing was just mega, just... Yeah, the gearbox was so easy, so smooth. The brake pedal was so effective, but rock solid. There was no play in anything. You know, the, the way the car turned was in direct proportion to your steering inputs. Yeah. And actually, when you started to lean on it, it just had a whiff of understeer that you could just peel out of the throttle to cure. And I loved it. And within two or three laps, I just thought, yeah, this, this is a bit of me. I, I'm, I'm a driving I'm, god. I'm, I, yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. so good. <laughs> no, so I think, you know, the rate at which other people were passing me was enough to keep those thoughts in check. <laughs> but the point is, it didn't take long and actually having someone like Ralph Kellner's alongside me, remember, it's the first time I've ever shared a car, yeah. single-seaters, you're on your own. Yeah. So there's always an excuse. Oh, so-and-so's car or set-up no is better than mine. You've got a teammate, so you've got a direct benchmark. He's brilliant. He's still a mate. We both work for Eurosport doing a Le Mans commentary. And, um, and Ralph was helpful. And uh, uh, frankly, I, I don't think I was far off at all, if, if at all. By the time the, the race came, we'd had practice and qualifying. I think I was where I needed to be. And, and uh, I led a few races that year. The, the Roush was woefully unreliable. But I drove in that first year on next to no money with Ralph Kellner's and Jean-Marc Gounon, who was like fresh out of Formula One and Mercedes sports car fame. And you just inhale all this knowledge. Yeah. And they were good fun as well, you know. So that was great. Did I you do the really full season? Uh, I did, right, I do. I think it was a six-round championship and maybe I did four races, something like that. Mega. And did that, you have to bring any enough. money for the second race? Oh, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You, but, but, it, but it was, it was, it was pennies. 
you know, and, and compared to what they they wanted and needed. And that's kind of been the story of all, all the times of my career is basically just about ground to a halt. It's been teams that were absolutely in the shit financially with the bailiffs banging on the door that they suddenly say, okay, yeah, you kind of got an appropriate CV or somebody said you, you can kind of string a lap together. You know, if you can just bring what you say You're you a bloody ambulance chaser, aren't uh, you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you spot <laughs> the ones. It's a bit True. like being in the nightclub at three in the morning, spotting the drunk one in the corner, yeah, isn't it? it is Am I allowed to say that on the podcast? <laughs> yeah. probably, I'm probably not. It's probably you, Chris. Um, <laughs> I had a similar, exactly the same situation, I think it was two years later, so sort of 2003, I was 23 years old. And it really had ground to a halt. And I was working for a mate of mine flogging hospitality packages just to earn some dosh and pay the bills. And we needed some tickets for Le Mans for this company that wanted to take a bunch of guests. And I couldn't get the pit access I needed that they wanted. And and I said to my buddy Vincent Franceschini, who has a company selling those things now and used to own a Formula 3000 team, God, it would be so much better if I was just racing in the freaking race so that we could get the pit passes. And he said, well, why don't we try? And he was great. And, and I thank Vincent because he got on the phone and he called everyone and I called everyone I knew. And Courage, which was a factory team based at Le Mans with loads of history. And crucially know, French. Crucially French. And they just designed and built a brand new LMP2 car but they had next to no money and they were happy to take someone on a... I mean, when I say last minute, this was probably a week before the Le Mans 24 hours. I think even the... I you think didn't have even to do pre-quality because you'd already done enough laps there, had you? I can't... No, no, I'd ne- I, no that's right. I had, I had been to Le Mans. I'd been to Le Mans two years ago. Don't you have to have done four one. laps? There, so now it's, it's a lot more involved. So, so back then you just had to complete, uh, I think, three night laps and maybe four or five laps in, in the daytime. Now you've got to do the simulator tests to learn about traffic and the different speeds of the different categories, and it's much more complicated. But back then, you could kind of blag it, and uh, and they needed they needed money, any money, anything, and um, and we did a deal and sort of wrote all this stuff into the contract about advertising space on the car, and I want this, that, and the other, and I knew and paddock passes and paddock pass, yeah, all of that, and I knew I knew exactly sort of what I was writing in, and I, you know, in terms of like branding space. I got down there and chucked a load of stickers on the car and off we went. And, and, and that turned out to be a really good chassis, the Courage LMP2. Again, I was with Jean-Marc Gounon and, um, and, and I got... Did it finish? Great. Didn't finish, but we were quick. We led. We, led, we led the class for quite a long time. Yeah. That is my Le Mans history. You know, I've been there seven times. I've never finished. I crashed once and I've had teammates crash and all the other times engine failure. Yeah, I'm getting like that. With spa. I've done four spas now, and I've never finished. So and I never annoying. will. I, d- I know I'll keep going back. I've never <laughs> finished the spa six-hour classic either with the Frankel brothers. Really? I thought you no. did last time. Well, no, I no. mean, it got across the it line. But it, I don't think you really count it to finish. It probably spent an hour in the pits at some point. So, Sam, yeah. we're talking about raising money to, to race. How does that relate today at Le Mans, at the high end, and even Formula One at the bottom end? It's good, it's good about it. So, I mean... The problem is that the sums of money needed today are so outrageous that it's hard to justify even starting to make an effort. What's the seats? If you turn up for an arrive and drive in an LMP2 car, one seat, 
At Le Mans or for yeah, the whole year? for Le Mans. So if you're a gentleman driver and you yeah. want to buy a seat, you need a million quid. Yeah. Which is outrageous, but that's what it is. But that's not just to do the one race, because you have to do some of the ALMS or ELMS to... I think it's a million quid for that weekend, isn't it? It's, it's a million quid for the whole Le Mans project. So you probably, okay. you probably get a, a test or two days out of that. You get the official test day out of that and all the governs that goes with it. So you, you get your little motorhome in the paddock and your race suit and your tickets for your mates and da 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 but Quite expensive. It's, it's, it's quite it's expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, that, but, that, but a that's a million pounds. quid for a team that's planning this financially to go. But there are no, what, there, what, are, there are very few mugs there now. You know, everyone's is the going thing. there. The, the, you know, the, the kind of garage Easter thing doesn't exist yeah. anymore, does it? It's very few gentlemen drivers in LMP2. And thankfully, they've still got GTE AM as a class because, you know, Le Mans' entire history, in fact, the start of Le Mans is gentlemen drivers. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I do kind of roll my eyes a little bit when you hear people, observers, fans, even commentators pouring scorn on the performance of some gents at, at, you know, at Le Mans because, I'm sorry, but that is Le Mans. You know, this event that we all love wouldn't exist if it weren't for the Bentley boys back in the day. And yeah, they, they were all, in the end, very accomplished drivers, but they were gentlemen drivers. This wasn't a pro event. And the sport, the sport would collapse long term yeah. if it wasn't for those people. Yeah, and sports car racing, if you look around the world, you know, all the stuff that you're doing in GT3, you know, Blancpain and the countless other GT championships, and, you know, we've got a successful World Endurance Championship, we've got a very successful um, European Le Mans series, we've got Asian Le Mans series, IMSA things sort of pretty much doing, you know, doing IMSA's good things. never been it's healthier, has it? And it's thanks to the quantity of gentlemen drivers that are funding these privateer teams because remember there's only a few factory teams with big corporate budgets and it's thanks to the gentleman drivers wanting and needing to employ pros as their coaches to help guide them along the way that has given so 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 many more drivers like me a lifeline a career lifeline and um, I think when I was doing it that that was a trend that was maybe just starting and and now it's in full swing and it was also a you know tin top so what we call GTE now yeah um you know, there was they were slightly sneered at those cars back in the day as being a bit. It, it was a career path that you didn't take voluntarily. Yeah. You'd basically exhausted all other, all other avenues of being a racing yeah. driver, and you ended up in one of those cars. Whereas now, from quite a young age, yeah. GT3 is very attractive, isn't it? Super. Well, I say GT3, yeah. but you know, GT3 is the stepping stone to GTE, obviously. Yeah. But it but it's now very much a you identify you're not going to get into F1, yeah. have a go at this because you can earn a good living. You, yeah. There's all sorts of peripheral stuff that comes with it, as you say, coaching, yeah. uh, other activities that can earn you a living. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's become a little industry, hasn't it? If you, if you assume the default position of the majority of young drivers that aspire to you know, being professionals is, you know, we want to get to F1, the quantity of paid professional factory GT3 type drivers today that came out of single-seaters and kind of pivoted away from that F1 dream to do the GT3 thing and they're doing it so much earlier now as well it's not like they're trying and failing as F1 test drivers and then sort of landing in G- they're sort of doing a year of entry level Formula Renault or whatever it is and then leaping across because they know that they've got a much better chance of making a living as a paid professional I was watching you guys from Spa and also Nürburgring 24 hours and just the leaderboard you know the top sort of 40 cars you look at the names the it's names. impressive yeah. yeah amazing I also, saw they're, 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 so, they're so young as well when you go to sign on yeah I mean, they all look like my children <laughs> I saw uh, Garage 59 is bringing back some silverware from Tokyo 
Yeah, Alex, uh, Alex um, Calm and, and, um, and Goobin had a good result. But it was they? brilliant. He uh, posted on his Instagram account. With, no, with, no, with, with Hacken and uh, three or yeah. four spaces below they him. Had and yeah. They had <laughs> Miku cool. in the 720, yeah. didn't yeah. they? Fantastic. So I think Alex How cool is that? Because he bought, he bought a McLaren, didn't he? Yeah. He bought a McLaren F1 car. But sadly, it wasn't Hakkinen. It was a cool tire car. Not that, not that we mind that, David, but no. I think he wanted his, his, his countryman's car. I want to change the subject quickly. We'll come back to that. Because um, sometimes we discuss things that have happened to us in the last week. Well, it's holiday time, so I haven't been doing an awful lot. Uh, I did a bit of work last week with um, Flintoff and McGuinness, which was good fun, and I ended up submerged in an estuary, but that's <laughs> was fine about that in a, on, on the telly at a later date. But there was this incident, well, more than a week ago, uh, with the Type 64, which was, um, uh, I, I, I hesitate to say, a, a Porsche. It was Ferdinand Porsche's development project sports car that he started before the second world war that i drove for a film that we put up on youtube and it was at the rm auction at pebble beach uh last weekend and um it's caused a bit of a hoo-ha and these two gents here have going to have a view on this because they're both very much in this world so did you know about the car a year ago did you know yes that i did existed? but only only because randomly it was doing the rounds and it was trying to be sold yeah and it got put under my nose would you, do you, but know you didn't anyone? you didn't really know it existed like I, you know I, an no, auto, look, I'm auto a, union dude, exists. I'm, a, I'm a i'm a geek i did know it existed yeah. but that's probably not saying it's anything other than obscure because mm. i quite like those things so i did um i did know it existed but most people didn't you're quite right so yeah. you t- you say what happened at the auction and why it was anomalous well in terms of, I, I, I posted on this and had um, quite a lot of feedback from it. I, I, I personally, uh, for a car... Feedback code for abuse? Or? Uh, no, 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 a mixed abuse. Some people saying, no, he definitely said, you know, 30, 40, 50. Well, let's say what happened. Fine. Well, in my view, for a car so heavily publicised by RM, quite rightly, because that's their job... So we've got an auction room. For paint, a, paint the picture. For Be a, a commentator. No, but, no, I will in a, in a second. But they've heavily publicised a car... For the last few months, as their you know the cat front catalog um, car for the auction at Pebble Beach, which, which in itself is quite punchy. Given it they is. Had a, they had but, a but bloody what? LM F1 in the same auction, didn't they? Yep. Co- cor- yeah. Correct. Um, but that came. They announced that car a little bit later. So this was the car they'd sort of been using for their sort of main PR, um, and they called it the twenty million dollar Porsche. So. Why would an auctioneer open up a $20 million Porsche at $30 million? They wouldn't. And, you know, yeah. It doesn't matter for people who think they heard something else. An auctioneer just doesn't open up a car. You know, it, he took a bid from somewhere in the room, whether it was a person or a chandelier or the wall <laughs> or whatever. You know, this is the auction world. They, he, he opened which, up which, the bid. Which opened, we should say is legal. Which is legal because it's below the reserve. Yeah. Um, he opened up the bidding, in my opinion, whether you can hear it or not, at $13 million. What was the reserve set at? Uh, 17, wasn't it? Uh, uh, well, no, because he bid well, it to 17 and a half. So, uh, th- look, th- here's my very simple view. Uh, the auctioneer said 13. Uh, people might have heard incorrectly. The poor girl or guy inputting the numbers obviously heard it incorrectly and put 30 in. And, and wasn't even... It sort of doesn't matter. That's what she, that's what she did. He, he 
got the bids going. Wasn't he looking at the screen though? Couldn't he see? No, the screen's behind him. The screen's him. behind him. The screen's behind so, him. So, so, yeah, so for people listening who maybe don't know, that this was the point. Is the auctioneer did nothing wrong, but whoever was plugging in the numbers on the massive TV screens Screen, that the whole is audi- audience yeah. is looking at, and everyone online watching yeah. live YouTube footage. Yeah. We're they, talking they, about a typo. Yeah. No, well, yeah, it's it, a typo between thirteen one three or thirty three zero yeah. million dollars. And so, as far as the audience were concerned, you know, bear in mind the auctioneer is you know he's not English. He speaks fluent, brilliant English, but there's still a bit of an accent. Chuck in a bit of fluffy distortion, whatever, from a microphone yeah. and, and a and PA and he's system. going quickly as well. It's not you know this wasn't you know this it, he wasn't stalling the bidding. It was now you love the, con- you love conspiracy theories. Was anyone actually bidding on this car, Edward? I, I believe there was not one real bid. In the room, people could disagree with me, but I just we, we know the market well enough. There's no one to pay thirty million dollars for that car, um, and and the bids just won't go up that that quickly on a car like that. So I don't believe there was a bidder, and I believe the only person that was wrong on the whole thing was the owner of the car who wanted too much money for it. Because if it was if it was being sold at no reserve, it would have very quickly been corrected yeah. because someone would have stood up in the room and said, no, 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 I said a million dollars, not $30 million. Yeah. And we would have found out what the car's worth. But the car's been for sale for a long time. Anyone who's suitable for that type of car has been offered it. Yeah. It's not worth... I think it's a real shame there have been some pretty sensationalist stories since and a, and a lot of hype and, and it... You know, it just it just doesn't justify the situation. It's really simple. Yeah. You know, some administrative, yeah. you know, somebody with fat thumbs yeah. plumbed in the wrong number, yeah, and the auctioneer yeah. carried on well, regardless. But, but I, the, the, one other thing, and I will say this, and some people may dislike me for saying this, RM Auction had three days of auctions um, over that weekend, a week and a half ago. And the market is tough. And for an auctioneer to have to stand up there, hour on end, looking out at the audience with not that many hands being put up, with, and they would have been telling the owner of that car for the weeks leading up to the auction that we haven't got much interest, we think you need to reduce your reserve, and to be told no, 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 you know, to get onto the final day of that car, I think they just would have rattled through it. You know, if he's not going to, you know, we know the market better than anyone is what they would be thinking. We're just going to rattle through this. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, not sold. Thank you. Bye. Mm. And I, I think that's how it would have got, you know, he, he would have been tired up there. And, yeah. and then they don't want to play the games of these owners that want too much money for their cars. No. no. Anyway. Well, I've got to be careful because I, you know, I, I like RM and, uh, and they give me cars to drive. It's a very good non-commercial relationship because people say, do you get paid for those films? I don't at all. I can't. I work yeah. for the BBC. But I, I, I pride myself on separating the interest in the machinery from the commercial reality of what it's worth. I don't care what it's worth, really. It doesn't interest me at all. As a, as a historical object, it's fascinating. I mean, I've sat and driven a car that I can be pretty sure Hitler sat in. Now, that... That's nothing. I'm not proud of that. It doesn't. It doesn't give me any sort of great satisfaction. But it is something that I probably probably never thought I'd do in my life. And I love the fact that it it's the genesis of what became the car company that interests me the most, which is Porsche. Um, and I, I I love the fact that you can see that sort of the genesis of that you can see the beginning of the dna of that company in that product the way that the headlights sit in that front wing you go i showed my eight-year-old a picture of it i said what's that even it's a porsche yeah and i and i think that's absolutely fascinating and i and the more i thought about that I thought, what value do you place on that so if i had a net worth of a five billion what would i pay for that car 
quite a lot of money is the answer. But I just clearly none of those individuals with those resources are that interested in it. Mm. And I'm, I'm sad that, it, that, that the auction went that way because in some respects it probably does harm the long-term prospects for that car. Yeah, well, look, the car, the car is worth what someone's willing to pay for it and yeah. they, they didn't even stand a chance of finding out what someone's willing to pay for it on the night. I'd have thought there'll be there'll be some very clever sort of blue chip collector out there who's waiting, maybe sort of rubbing his hands with glee and letting the dust settle. There are so many conspiracy theories about the car, though. There is one that Porsche tried to buy it, couldn't buy it. The guy wanted too much money. I don't know what it was, you know. And and that Porsche then, having not been able to buy it, started a low level uh, PR campaign to question. The you know the the provenance of the vehicle. I mean, again, I, 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 I hasten to add the word alleged. I've no, I've heard all sorts of rumours about it. I suppose if all publicity is good publicity, a lot more people, as you say, now know the car exists than ever did yeah. six months ago. Yeah. RM have done a superb job of making it yeah. famous. I mean, yeah. the thing made it onto Bloomberg. It's not often a car makes it onto front yeah. page news internationally, yeah. is it? Yeah. So they did a good job of that. What else came out of that auction that you found interesting? I spoke to you afterwards on the blower, and you, you, Edward, you said there was some stuff. You were just interested that the no-reserve cars... There were some real bargains being had. Uh, there, there were, you know, unfortunately for us British car dealers going over there with pounds in our back pocket, it didn't buy us many dollars. So, you know, there weren't weren't some there weren't so many opportunities for us to pick up some good deals. But uh, well, there's a, a few things from my mind came out of it. You know, there are there were several cars put into the auction that have been quietly for sale for sale for some time. I think none of them sold, um, which shows the owners want too much money for them. And, and this is not a market where you can dictate what you want for something in most cases. You know, it's, it's a buyer's market. Um, I think the auction houses in general did a very good job. There were a huge amount of cars offered over the weekend at no reserve. So there were some very cheap cars and there were some surprises. Uh, I think the, the, the best result for a single car was the little 1967 911S yeah, with, a, with a rally pack. Estimated at two hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars, it made nine hundred and fifty or nine hundred thirty thousand dollars. That was a very cool car. First yeah. paint, eight thousand miles, lovely thing. Cool. What do you think, Sam? No, I'd, I'm I'd, sure I'd, you, I'd, you I'd, weren't I'd, there, but you watched from afar. Well, I'm I think sure. The fact, the fact that I wasn't there sort of says a, a little something about you know my personal experience of where the market's at as well, because. I don't get heavily involved in the classic road car sector in the way that you do. You know, it's, it's what you've been doing all day, every day, forever. Um, I'm very much more immersed in the historic racing world. And it all starts with the driver coaching that I do because you build a relationship with an owner who's racing his cars. And over time, they start to ask, what do you think I should buy next? Or you have a conversation where you say, look, you, you're really getting on top of this car. You, you could handle something a lot more powerful or maybe it's the other way around sometimes. And, and you end up sourcing and, and, or, or helping sell or brokering, whatever. And I've been packed off to Pebble Week for the last four or five years on behalf of various clients to go and see or buy mm. or sell or do, do something. And this was the first time that hasn't happened, actually. That's so very telling, it, isn't it? it I've, I've, I mean, just in my microcosm of, of, of th- that world, yeah, I, th- I thought it was interesting. Yeah, I've... The car market I, I find both fascinating and exasperating and tedious at the same time at the moment. I, you know, last week there was a picture of a, was it Top 555, five, I think, on an Instagram screen grab someone sent me of a 720S they had for sale for 160 grand. 
with a list of 280 well, under 2,000 miles. I mean, the, the arse has fallen out of some certain parts of the market, and quite rightly so. What's interesting is, though, that the, the race car sector seems to be more resilient. I'm not saying it hasn't taken but a that, hit. But that, but that makes total sense, because, because there are fewer of them, yep. because they're being used, and most importantly, they're being bought for the right reasons by the right people yeah. with the right money. I mean, take, take this place today. I mean, it's, I've, I've been here, it feels like, pretty much every day for the last week or so as everyone's getting testing and ready for the revival. It's absolutely packed. And we've already chatted with various racers, friends in the paddock who are here with newly acquired cars. And I was here yesterday and eavesdropping over lunch and you know, another driver saying, oh, I bought this, oh, and I bought that, and that, and that, and that. And it's like, wow, you know, there are, there's a lot of transactions happening. I'm not saying that they're happening at the peak prices of, say, 2014, but because these things are eligible for so many events, there's so much you can do with a historic race car that it seems to be a bit more resilient than a road car. I also think a lot of people that spend the money have earned the money and therefore are very clever. They didn't become very wealthy without being sharp. And if you take a 10-year view on a very expensive motor car now, I think you'd have to want it to be competition eligible. Yeah. Because this is where you'll be using it in 10 years' time. You know, it's, it's conceivable that you won't be allowed to drive a 250 short wheelbase anywhere near any town in 10 yeah. years' time. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but you, the, the, the rate of change and also the rate of social non-acceptance of polluting vehicles means that that might be the case. But you'd have thought that Goodwood could probably ring-fence that. Yeah. So if you're going to have the money in a car and you can't compete with it... I mean, I've got some old snotters, and I have to say I'm thinking... What am I going to do with them? They're going to become useless. And I, I, there's, a, there's a lurking subprime there. An example I give you is the F, an Ferrari F40. Is Eula's uh, moving out to uh, Somerset soon? I know. I thought the sort of North Circular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, the, the low emissions so, so zone so in London oh, is, it? Oh, is it? moving out London's to Somerset. He's going to have to pay I a lot ask, of tax. I ask... Uh, dearie me, Edward. I, 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 I ask this. Tax, I, this is, is an example, right? So Ferrari F40. Yeah which is my, is my poster car from when I was a kid. Yeah, me too. I love driving them. Yeah. I'd love to own one. What they now? A, a good one's over a million quid, a bad one's a million quid. Is that, is that about right? Yeah. Okay? Which, which to me seems an awful lot of money for yeah. a car, which and this is a stat that the great Andrew Frank will always cite. There are more F40s built than 993 RSs. Wow, you're okay? kidding. Yeah, I've there no are. Idea. They built a lot of F40s. Wow. Um, and so the, the, there's, there's a few about. And I, just, I, don't, I suspect... Everyone that got burnt or crashed has reappeared. I don't think many ha- right. are lost titles, as they say. Yeah. So what's one of those worth in 10 years' time? If you can't, you can't drive it everywhere you want to on the road, yeah. you can't race it because it's not a racing car, what's it worth? Does it have value as an object, as a piece of art? Does it become installation art? Yeah. Is it a Banksy? Is it, a, you know, is it something like that? That you've moved on a generation, so it probably isn't as significant as it once was because people like you and I that, that saw it. Poor as Sam un- won't fit in one. Um, oh, no, I do. I've, do. I've, I've driven the same car that you, you know, you made famous. You've done more for the values of those NF50s than anyone on the planet. I oh, think Jamie's with your incredible car. Oh, Jamie's, Jamie's yeah. car. Oh, so that was and that was an interesting conversation. Now we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. We, we ought to get him on this. He's an interesting guy, Jamie, isn't he? But. Um, but what's that car worth? Is it worth a million quid? I'm not sure it is. I, I because I, I'm not sure, it's as, I'm not sure it's as part of the vernacular as it once was. Yeah. Because it's not as relevant to the people that will then be rich enough to buy it. You can't use it the way it was intended. So I, I'm not trying to dampen the value of F40s. Yeah. God, I'd love one. Yeah. I'd love to be able to afford one. No, I'm not. I'm not, sure. I'm not sure. I. 
I, 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 the F40 is an interesting car because it's, it's a poster car for a, a generation, but it's actually not a single generation. It's, you, you think about the people that like an F40. They're everyone from sort of late teens yeah. to, to 70 years old. Dude, my 14-year-old doesn't give a monkey yeah. to an F40. But, but, but nor, really. nor to any of his no, friends. But a lot of people I've sold F40s to, and the thing I love about an F40 is it's never really about investment. That's the one that, that they can afford it now. That's the one I want. Um, That's a good point. So, yeah. so the people are buying them for the right reasons. Correct. Okay. So are there, are, is there a case to be made that there are halo cars that are somewhat impervious to... The yes, yes, there are cars that are ring-fenced. Yeah. Short wheelbase we just walked past. We've yeah. just walked yeah. past a silver short wheelbase. Um, and, and Edward and my face is just melted. Because for me, it is the car. More so than a GTO. I think an alley-bodied short wheelbase is the thing that I'd sell my okay, but, children but, for. But that's from a previous generation. That's it's not the generation but, that you but grew I'm a, up But with. I'm a car geek. So obviously my interest probably expands further into other generations than is normal. So, but I do think there are vehicles that are ring-fenced. I, yeah. I think that a, G, I think a GTO, I think... Uh, all, so all the special Ferraris, all, all the special Italian tackle is ring-fenced. Mm-hmm. Quite a bit of the German stuff probably as well, some of the British stuff. But, I, but th- we're talking about the absolute apex material. You know, yeah. I think, you know, C-type, D-type, they're great. But, you know... Uh, you know... What about a semi-lightweight E? I suppose that's a competition car, isn't it? I'm talking about stuff you can't compete in. Yep. Stuff that's stuck between the rock and the hard place. Yeah. You, if you can't use it as intended, if you can't race it, and yet you can't Sunday it, what role does it have then? So the question is, you know, so hopefully we're all going to be around for quite a few decades to come, and as long as that's the case, the people of our generation, I hope, would remain interested in owning something like an F40 and... I can't imagine a world where you're not allowed to use it. It just might be, you know, quite expensive well, to the, use the, it or not the done thing. Well, the place I'm slightly getting to is I, I, I think there are many parallels with the wine market. Now, I don't buy much wine. When I, what I do, I, I drink. But those people that get involved in, you know, these wine uh, indexes yep. and trade wine, the amazing thing is, of course, the one thing that never happens, it never gets drunk. Yeah. So, so this, this is, a, this is a, a product that's been commoditized and is traded as you know, a very valuable object, but its, its intended purpose is never reached. Mm. You don't drink it, mm. but it, ret- it retains that value. So if you can trade wine and never drink it, why can't you trade cars and never drive them? It's, it, I, is that possible? I, 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 I mean, well, Edward, you, you'd be better to answer that than me, but just... I'm not interested my, in that, but... The thing is, cars need to be driven. That's the first thing. The second thing is they're big physical objects. They need to be stored and transported. You know, they're not as versatile as wine or even better, you know, classic watches. I mean, the ultimate sort of flexible asset class to invest in or, or collect um, because they're just so manageable. If you're storing and yeah. keeping and trading a lot of them, a car is much more difficult in that sense. So there must be a limitation. It's, it's a very interesting... I, I, look, I'm, I'm not one to talk about investment because I don't invest in cars. It's, you know, I, I buy and sell what I like. Yeah, which um, is key. And if someone says, is, is that going to double in price? Well, I don't know. Ask, ask someone else. Um, but I think an F40 will always be a highly desirable car. Whatever price level that is, I yeah. don't know. But it will be a desirable yeah. car. I'm sad to hear that your, your 14-year-old isn't interested in it. Not, um, not, not, not interested. And he's... I'm sure he's seen that. Well, he might not have seen that film. And it's a, diff- it's a difficult example to choose because it's understandable my offspring might have a com- complicated relationship with cars yep. and it's robbed them a lot of time with their father, I would have thought. <laughs> but but, um, but yeah. their, you know, their generation, 
generally has far less interest in motor vehicles than, than any of us understand. Yeah. They're into gaming, they're into a virtual world. Yeah. You know, any when you see Montoya and Barrichello joining this e racing community, you can completely see why. Totally. It's yeah. it's mass it's going yeah. to be massive. Yeah. Um so and I and I do believe that 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 the, the generational nature of these interests is really important. We, we, we ignore that at our peril. It's, it's what you... My garage of cars is, is ramshackle and ridiculous. But if you go and look at a copy of Performance Car from 1989 or Car Magazine, you'll totally understand yep. why I have them. They are yeah. the cars that I wanted yeah. when I was at that impressionable age. The, the age at which you were talking about having limitless possibilities. That's, yeah. that's what I wanted to do. I wanted yeah. to own those cars. But no one... But... but I fear the next generation won't do that. I mean, it's it's conceivable that you know our children won't even drive. Yeah, that you know it's conceivable that it might be really antisocial to own a car. I know, you know and let alone to drive in anything that emits anything. And at that's all, why know. it's really apt that we're sitting here at Goodwood, because I've I've we've all got a few friends who are skeptical of what we do, who view us as being slightly noisy, polluting, selfish bastards, right? <laughs> in our coming here to this slightly swanky event. It's a, it's a closed door, it's an old boys club and you think you're all better than the rest of us. There's nothing better to disavow them of that opinion than bring them to the revival, is there? I've done it a couple of times, brought people along that were sniffy and just said this is ridiculous and within 10 minutes yeah. they stood at Madrid watching you sliding round as the sun fades in the Kinrara yeah. on the bank and they yeah. go, this is just magic. It's magic. It's magic. And it just changes yeah. their opinions completely. You need to bring them all here. Which is why we're all, you know, so, so grateful. I was, you know, speaking personally, I think that Goodwood was the catalyst. It's been the fuel that has allowed the historic racing fraternity and event calendar to just explode over the last sort of 15 or so years. And I think it all got kick-started here. It existed before. It was, you know, his, historic club racing was a thing, but it was a niche group of enthusiasts on a far smaller scale than that we, which we've become accustomed to. And the great thing about Goodwood is it's not just for the blokes in the paddock, it's for all the families in the stands and on the grass banks as well. And that will keep these cars alive and the passion and enthusiasm yeah. for it, I hope, for decades to come. So I think you're in the right place. I think competition cars, bang on. Yeah. In fact, I, I, what I would like to do is sell some of my older, less valuable rubbish and see if I could cobble some money together yeah. and own a GT Junior or something. We'll get you in a Formula Ford or something like that, Chris. I don't Chris. bloody hurt myself. So <laughs> now, now we're sitting at Goodwood. Here's, here's an interesting one for you. Now, I'm a little bit salty and sore about a particular video that always gets shown on the what not to do when you drive at Goodwood driver's briefing where they show me <laughs> breaking in a bloody straight line and a GTO firing off. It's my podcast. So I can say what I want. It's my bloody opinion. I did nothing wrong. I've got my on board. My steering wheel is straight. The circuit moves there. Yeah. It wasn't me. Yeah. And they show it as an example of what not to do in a braking zone. And every time, 50 people around me laugh and all my mates go, where is you knob? <laughs> now, so joking aside. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Has this place become too competitive at the top end? Or is that just a natural corollary of competitive people with money and cars? Well, first thing is just on that video, and for listeners who don't know, this this is a massive driver's briefing with the Duke of Richmond and all of his stewards, and there's probably what 300 people in the room or something, and And they they show these videos as part of a a way to disincentivize you from taking it too seriously. It's a sort of public naming and shaming of of previous misdemeanors. But I I've never thought the clip that they show repeatedly of you is about you. It is. Wrong. It's about. Is it? mo- they sh- th- the first year they said, "Don't outbreak yourself," so it looked like it was him. And the second year they said, "Don't move in the braking zone if there's a faster car behind you." And I was at the back, just going, "What the?" I ne- I never knew that. I, w- I always thought for the first time I ever saw the footage of that. The that goes yeah. on. I mean, it is highly amusing for my friends, but well, I, my I kind of friends. feel for everyone in- involved in that little incident because it's so easy for that to happen. But you know. It is a part of the road that jinks left and then jinks right, but you take a straight line through it. What that means for the guy behind is you see a gap and that gap closes very, very quickly. We all know it well enough to know that you have to be very, very certain if you're going to stuff it up the inside yeah. there. Yeah, it's particularly in historic cars because you know, they don't brake all that well and they waft across the road. You know, you d- it's not like you pick your lane and you stay in it. As soon as you try and turn, it brake, turn and brake at the same time, you're into the lane to the left of you and then the one after that. And also, the, the, you marry the circular friction available with an old tyre with the way the brakes work on an old car. What people don't realise that haven't driven one of these things is you tend to get into a very steady state braking. Yeah. You find where the maximum retardation is yeah. that isn't wearing your brakes out but isn't, isn't going too slow and you stick with it. Yeah. And if you ask any more of the car at that point, you get an immediate lock-up, don't you? You're yeah. done. It yeah. just leaves you straight away. Very much so. and, w- and with that, you also lose the ability to change the direction of the car. Yeah. So once you're committed into a braking zone in an old car, it's not like being in a modern GT3 car. You don't have any options. You're no, there. Exactly. And you don't have much space to gather it all up. I had this yesterday. Don't tell Gregor Fiskin. I was doing a couple of laps <laughs> in his Cobra that he's racing in the TT in a couple of weeks. And I, I, I'm, I must have braked down at Wookat. I mean, you can't count five meters, but it felt pretty much the same as the previous lap. And I suddenly locked up the inside front. And for reasons that still I don't quite understand, next thing I know, the rear snapped sideways. And for what felt like five seconds was probably, you know, a gnat's whisker of a second. I was sort of, I think, all four wheels locked up sideways You're on the way into good. I'm going to be in the papers. And, and then it, it, <laughs> it, but it comes back and you kind of get used to it. But, and, and all was well, but it's just... It's such a fine line in a historic car between, as you say, you're sort of you're driving within and up to the limits of the car, and suddenly, that that, that line that is the limit. It's it's not a window; it's a line, and you step over it in an instant. It's particularly for me under brakes. The cars under brakes are largely inert; yeah. they don't give you many options, which is a complete. 
different, di- total difference to the, to the way they feel under power. Under power, they feel limitless possibilities. You've got slip angles to play with. You can really position them where you want to. That's a very but, wide window in the yeah. corner on power. And you're you right. Can do what yeah. you want. You yeah. feel you feel that you, there's a very broad canvas to play with. But yeah. under brakes, gosh, you're limited. Yeah. Okay, so we digress massively there. So I've had my whinge. The but the it's a really interesting place to race here because yeah. that. It, the difference between the very pointy end where there's a lot of prep being done on the cars and some very, com- let's say, competitive driving yep. going on and the back where some blokes just paid five million quid for a very eligible car and it's been invited to Goodwood yep. is so enormous yep. that the yep. times yep. it worries me. Yeah, but and we didn't quite answer your question. Is it getting too competitive here at Goodwood? I think no, it's absolutely not. I think it's absolutely brilliant and I love that in historic racing with really important priceless cars, we're racing them at the sharp end of the revival grids with the same level of intensity that they would have been raced back in the day so I feel like we're doing it justice where the line does get crossed is maybe the pressure on preparers and don't just blame preparers for this blame also owners who pay the bills and put pressure on preparers to cheat and it's there is only so much that scrutineers can keep on top of and it is possible to do things under the skin that it would take a hell of an investigation a time a time-consuming investigation to, to really figure out what they're up to. And that's where I start to think, look, I, I love a clever interpretation of the rules and there's things that we all do, but you've still got to be legal. You know, if, if, if adjustable dampers are, you know, adjust, adjustable ride height dampers are not allowed, then don't come with adjustable ride height dampers. But if you want to go testing with adjustable ride height dampers and figure out the optimum ride height for your car and then have a set made to match that that are non-adjustable, what's wrong with that I actually kind of applaud that I think yeah. that's, that's clever that's what ra- this is competition yeah. that's what racing's all about and some of the drivers here at the sharp end that are really quick and pushing the boundaries and are the ones that maybe come under questioning of oh is that too intense is that pace too quick we don't want to see lap times below X I think hang on that was some of the best motor racing I've ever seen ever including countless Grand Prix on TV and what you know no, that was I, amazing I, I totally race. agree with you there's, there's a couple of points there one it was telling wasn't it before the members meeting that as drivers we received the, the name and shame email which we'd never had before so we were all sent an email yeah. weren't we which listed yeah. every individuals that were not welcome back or on final warnings it was basically like it read yeah. like my school report I got a doctored one that put me on the list did you from <laughs> 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 Ludovic Lindsay and I <laughs> absolutely <laughs> shat myself because I've, I've I don't know how I've got away I've been racing here for I don't know 15 years and I've got a Touch wood. I've got a clean sheet. Oh, commentators, bloody curse. But, uh, yeah, I know. Christ, okay, mate. I mean, you, 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 yeah. Really um, stitch myself. I think up. the other thing, and I love Goodwood. I'm a massive fan of Goodwood, and I'll do whatever I can to promote their events because yeah. I, I really believe this is the best motorsport event of any type in the world. I agree. Um, they they are very keen to stop drivers driving in a certain way, and yet when there's a shunt, their social media is all over it and, sp- yeah. and, and putting the putting the images out there. So I think they're they're slightly morally compromised there. They need to decide. I've what often their position I've is. often thought that's a bit uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. you know, you, you, you and I sit in a driver's briefing, or occasionally we get hauled up to the steward after a race for an absolute rollicking, and then that same incident is replayed countless times on Goodwood's <laughs> own social media. It's like, Go really? On. This was a great yeah. shunt. Yeah. But it's all, it's all the fun of the fair and, and there's always this lurking suspicion that something bad could happen here but you know what? It's, an, it's, a, it's a fast racing circuit. Everyone that comes here knows what they're doing yeah. and you, you, you know, you, you, 
you you come here at your own risk. And, and frankly, for me, the, the the fun that you have here far outweighs the danger. Yeah. But the, the line is, at what point do you risk the car? The preservation of the car has to be your ultimate goal. And, and, and that's what I try to keep in the front of my mind. And look, Sometimes in racing, things go wrong. But fundamentally, if you put the car's victory or the car's success, as it were, coming home in one piece, having done it justice, having hopefully extracted most of its potential, you keep that as your priority rather than the finishing position, then hopefully you know, you're going about it in the right way. Yeah, I think so. That's always been my, my aim. I, th- I think you're normally here either with the owner of the car. Yeah. The, the first thing is that they have a fun weekend. That's it. Yeah. You know, the second thing is that you bring the car home. I mean, that's, you know, I, 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 as long as they're having fun and smiling, yeah. I don't really mind. We've, we've both been in more competitive situations where, you're, where more is required of you yeah. and you might get the just win yeah. conversation, which is actually a lovely conversation to have. Well, I get, I get that, except it's, it's a longer sentence. It's make sure you win, but don't you dare damage my car. <laughs> yeah, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't work. Yeah. So they they don't quite link together. Normally, you're in the assembly area, and you're about to be waved out onto the grid when you have that conversation. It's like, oh, yeah, Richard, yeah, Richard, if you're listening to this, Richard Frankel, would, he'd, he'd do that to me. He'd, he's, before he'd go, right, just go and win. Yeah. And then just before I'd left, he'd go, don't bend it. Yeah. <laughs> you go, thank you, Richard. Yeah. Right, we're gonna, that's a convenient place to have a little stop. So... Um, Go and have a comfort break, and um, and also, as I did yesterday, go and find an undiscovered packet of Jaffa Cakes and devour them, because the Jaffa Cake is an underrated piece of confection. And we'll be back uh, after the Is it a the cake break. or a biscuit? It's technically a cake. <laughs> did you know that? I but do. I, but I do. I, and I, I got do. brought up on that, because I said it was in my biscuit tin. Well, I, saw and I had a load of smug people saying, well, why would you put cake in a biscuit tin? I digress. Go and have a wee. See you soon. <laughs> Collecting cars, the safe, smart and simple way to buy and sell collectible cars. An online auction platform for the UK and Europe. Follow us on Instagram at Collecting Cars and also CollectingCars.com CollectingCars.com podcast with Chris Harris and Edward Lovett. Welcome back to this Collecting Cars podcast where Goodwood is strangely quiet but I'm sure we'll have some GT40s and E-types come herring past in a minute and make some more noise. Um, here with Edward Lovett, that's at Edward Lovett, and um, uh, Sam Hancock at, so you're Hancock underscore Sam. Correct. Right, at, okay, I got well it. remembered, at, yeah. Okay, at okay, Hancock underscore there. Sam, yeah. Um, uh, here, here's a, here's a, a tricky subject. Cheating in motorsport, because we've touched on the legalities of some of the cars that turn up to Goodwood. What is the best motorsport cheat that you've ever heard? The one that makes you smile at the effrontery of it and, and the cleverness of it? Ah, oh, such a good question. So I had the incredible opportunity to work with Steve Nichols, who was technical director at McLaren during the Senna Prost era, and then went on to be technical director at uh, Ferrari and then Jaguar and da-da. And he is, to me, uh, you know, he's like an Adrian Newey of that era. He is just an engineering, motor racing, Formula One god. A walking forehead. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's just fantastic. And he's so chill. He's a lovely guy, and he's become a really good family friend. And I was doing a bit of historic F1 racing a few years ago, and he very kindly engineered the car and the stories that he tells about his time, particularly at McLaren, are just fascinating. And I remember we were having trouble getting the right balance on this historic F1, which was a 
you know, a Fittipaldi from 1977. It was slagged off at the time for being one of the crappiest cars ever built. And it wasn't that bad, but Steve was brilliant at helping us getting it right. And he said, well, you know, back in the... Sorry, it's my terrible sort of uh, Canadian... Is he Canadian? No, uh, where's he from? don't know. My terrible impression. Back in the day, you know, we had a similar issue on McLaren, whatever, whatever. And I said to Alan... You know, maybe if we do this thing with a spring and, and, and they basically created a very clever spring that under load got progressively stiffer, but so that when, it, when, the, when the aerodynamic load reduced and it came back in for its ride height check, it would, the car would sit back up tall and fulfill all the minimum ride height regulations. But under aero load in the corner, it was absolutely pinned to the floor. <laughs> I just love stuff like that. It's fantastic. But he said it, they had to get the construction of the spring just right so that it would expand back up to its normal height, legal height, in time for the ride height check when the car peeled into the pit lane and had to go onto the flat patch. I just love stuff. That's cool, like that. isn't it? I just, I suppose cheat's the wrong word. Interpretation of the rules. Yeah. Is because is, that is what motorsport's about. My dad was pretty good at it when I was in karting. You know, my first year, nine years old in cadet karting, I, you know, I'm six foot two now. I was always tall and, you know, I, I love a bacon roll at the karting burger van. So I was always a bit fat as well and needed to be lighter. And I went racing with a cadet car that had a secretly hollow made of aluminium rear axle when it should be solid steel. <laughs> and all of the nudge bars, which are, you know, on carts, they're all chromed steel. They were all aluminium. And I constantly had, was it Brasso or Autosol or whatever it was, and a rag constantly buffing them up to make them look, look <laughs> like proper steel chrome. I mean... You know, had a, a little bicycle drinks bottle for our fuel tank instead of a full normal plastic thing, you know, and um, yeah, all of that. <laughs> you recently drove on Top Gear in the Williams car, didn't you, with the... Uh, no, the, the Lotus. The, sorry, the Lotus. Lotus well, sorry, the Lotus. I mean, that story yeah. is mega. And that, that made me realise that that's something I want to do, is I want to go and make some more of those films. The fact that we've... That one went down very well. Yeah, that was you, brilliant. get quite good, accurate data back of what people like and what they don't like. Yeah. And um, that went down well. So we've been, I've been given the green light to do some others Fantastic. coming up. And I, I won't say what they are, but um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. In fact, I'd like, that's what I'd like to go and do. We'd like to go and do some 45 minutes and do four or five. Why can't you go and tell some stories? Six-wheel, Tyrrell. Oh, yeah, the racing stories and road car stories. You just, I hear anecdotes. One of the great, one of the great privileges of, of, of doing the job I've done for the last 20-odd years is you get to meet people who just in passing will drop lovely anecdotes. And you... One of the mistakes I've made is I've not written them all down because I like to go and investigate something. They just what can come out of a single statement. I thought of one the other day because I've got a nine two eight S four that Richard Tuttle and I are still trying to make work properly. I think we've just about got there now. It's a, it's a car that was it's another one of those poster cars that is there's no logical reason to own the bloody thing because by modern standards it's rather cramped, inefficient, and not very fast. But I just always wanted a nine two eight. I bought an S two and it was a shambles, so I bought an S four now, which is not the one I like the look of but it's a Manuel and it, it's a great car and I was talking to this bloke at the Paris Motor about 10 years ago who was a part of the design team and he said we were packed off to the wind tunnel in the in 76 with the car before it was going to be launched and people forget that the 928 remains the only sports car that's ever won the car of the year in 77 it was the car of okay. the year and um and it and we knew a bit about aerodynamics then. We, you know, we, we were sticking things in wind tunnels. We understood it. And, and they said they were very happy with the results of the car, and then, but they weren't spectacular. Then someone decided to reverse the car into the wind tunnel, and it performed exactly the same in reverse <laughs> as it did going <laughs> forwards. 
I get it. Thinking about it now, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Look at it. It makes. But but um. So I just love to take that single sentence and create a film around that statement, and then you start to understand more about the car and the people and the processes. Did the same man design the Audi TT, the first Audi the TT? The TT, or the first Boxster. I still think yeah. the first Boxster's problem was the back didn't look like the front, didn't look enough like yeah, the back. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly right, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think you, might, uh, you hear some wonderful cheats. I, I, I forget what we've done on these podcasts. Have I ever mentioned that, the one I heard or, or that I read somewhere about the Walkinshaw V12? Was that the hidden fuel tanks? That, that was the that was the one where they had the bladder to inflate. No, so we they haven't had a, talked about. They had it, a no. bigger fuel tank in the car than was allowed. Right. And I'm sure I'm getting this right because it involves Win Percy, who's closely connected with this place. And I don't want to get this story wrong. So if I have got it wrong. Please write in on Instagram or Twitter and correct me. So this thing had a seven liter V12 in it or something, yeah. and no one can understand how it was so economical. Yeah. Because it had you know they had a standardized fuel tank size. But apparently it had a much bigger fuel tank than was allowed. And at the end of the race, it had an inflatable bladder in the tank. So what you'd do is you'd have to crank this tank. You'd have to cr- he'd, he'd have a hand pump to crank this bladder full. Right. That would reduce the volume. So they checked the size of the tank. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. But after... And, and Murray, I think Murray Walker was doing the commentary in those days. Right. And after the race... Win Percy would be absolutely knackered, sweating, and and Murray would always say it was because of the physicality of this V12 animal. It wasn't. It's because he'd been furiously pumping <laughs> under the seat to try and fill up this bladder. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a fun time. I hope it's true, and I hope I haven't misquoted it. But I, I just love. love I just love stuff like that. It just occurred to me, like how many people have we just thrown under the bus? How many world championship? Well, victories are going to be asked, I've asked, reviewed. I and I, I say allegedly, I might have got that story yeah. completely wrong. Me too. It's I, uh, all but, alleged. But, but I think, I think it's, the, it's the great book that will never get written. It's a, such a shame because if you knew, yeah. if you knew some of them that we, that we never knew about, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's going on everywhere, isn't yeah. it? And, it and, 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 and it's fascinating because it is, it's, it's, a, it's a moral conundrum that bending the rules is at the very heart of this sport. Yeah. Isn't it? But it's taking the rules right to their limit. I went to listen to Gordon Murray speak the other day, and he was talking about the Brabham fan car, and you know, and the rule was that you're not allowed moving parts that are, I think, it was aerodynamic, but you are allowed if it's in relation to the cooling of the car. And so he, I love the idea. He didn't think, oh, all right, does that work for us or not? He got on the phone to a lawyer, and he said, "What is your interpretation of this regulation?" And the lawyer said, "Well." Taking it word by word, it's got to be a certain percent. It's got to have like fifty-one percent, I think. The majority of the of its function has to be to call the car, and that is the legal definition of that regulation. So, so long as the majority, fifty-one percent or whatever it is, is serving that purpose, then you can do what you want with the rest of it. And he said, "Yep, perfect. That works for us. Done." It's, it's the lateral thinkers, isn't it's it? So clever. It's the, pe- it's it. the people that see a regulation written down, and rather than go. Okay, I'll build something to that spec. They think, what can I do? What does that actually mean? Yeah. And where can I go with it? Yeah, yeah, I love that. Really cool. Uh, and, We've had uh, Doctor Ferdinand pass away. This oh week yeah, as well. so that's a that's a that's a very good one. So yeah, Piek, who who is for me undoubtedly the the great automotive engineer of my generation. If you look at what he did, you know he Andrew Frankel wrote a lovely thing on their Drive Nation. Uh, sites on Instagram, which you should all hook up to, by the way. It's a really, really good Instagram account, Drive Nation, um, where he, he sort of, he gave a very brief pricey of some of PX um, um, career highlights. And one was that he was 
as a young engineer working at Porsche, obviously he was part of the family. Um, he, he, he was brought onto the 911 project early on and the car had a wet sump design hmm. and that wasn't suitable for motorsport. So the whole thing was redesigned at PX bidding to, to be dry sumped. And that was entirely because of him and he wanted to go racing. Wow. And, um, and you know, that, so all of the early 911s were drove because of the way he wanted them to drive as an yeah. engineer. He was responsible for the 917. When they finished the 917 project, um, he'd had enough. There was no more racing, so he moved off to Audi. And then he fathered the Audi Quattro. That was entirely him, wow. which redefined rallying and probably redefined road car dynamics and what was possible with, you know, axles that could vector effectively. Um, and then he, um, he then he began empire building, didn't he? And I remember him standing up at the Geneva Motor Show in, what, 99, 2000, and talking about the Seat Leon. You know, he, he was the one that brought all those other brands in and, and Volkswagen, which was, when he took over in 93, was literally weeks away from bankruptcy uh, and turned it into the biggest car company in the world. Mm. And and he, subsequently, he was responsible for the Veyron. I mean, the great thing is a load of completely unnecessary, financially ridiculous projects happened because of him. And I love that. You know, without the PX of this world, you wouldn't have a Veyron. It's not commercially viable. You don't make money out of a Veyron. You just lose money. Yeah. And it's really sad that the way the FT reported his demise in, in their kind of news stories forward slash obituary, the FT said that, you know, they referred to the Veyron as a massive financial flop. That wasn't the, they've missed the point. Yeah. It, was an, it was an engineering showcase. It was showing you what VW could do. And in, in that respect, it was a bit like the Porsche 959. It, it, it prefaced the technologies that were coming. This was a car that was heavily turbocharged and had a dual-clutch gearbox. What do all cars now have? Mm. You know, it was, a, it was an engineering showcase. So, and I think he was a famously difficult man. And I, I mentioned on Twitter, I've never, I only ever met him a couple of times to shake his hand and he just, you know, and he walked off. But I once went to collect a press car. I was in Germany and I, and I needed a 997 GT2RS to do a story. And they're very German over there, as you can imagine. It's very organized. You make your booking. They're very straightforward whether you can have the car or not. For the first time ever, I got there. And this, they gave me a, mm, sorry, it's not here. And I, luckily, I was over there doing something else anyway. And I did say, come on, guys, this is a bit wrong. If I had five cars lined up to do this and I was budgeting for a film, this would be a problem. Yep. Is the car being crashed or something? And they went, no. And they were a bit, they were a bit quiet and cagey. Right. And then I had a mate who worked there and he, we went for a cup of coffee. He says, embarrassing, but basically Mr. Pieck hadn't driven a GT2 RS and wanted to drive one. So they they packed it off to him at the last minute. He wanted yeah. it the other day and he said, can I have one? They went, yeah, you have one. I just love the fact that he had such clout there and he yeah. was the godfather of the whole edifice that frankly, you, I can go get rid of him, get rid of the journalist. He can go and drive a boxster for the day yeah. and we'll send it to the Mr. irony PA. is if only they had just been honest and told you that that was why your car wasn't yeah. there, you'd have probably been like, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. If you're going yeah, to be, if you're going to be one upped by someone, yeah. let it be yeah. him. Yeah. Um, and I, I just some of the some of the, the sort of stories and the urban myths that went around about him. For example, if you any VW product that was made after about '95, if you put your hand underneath the dashboard, there's no clutter. Yeah. There's always a smooth surface. There's no wires hanging down. There isn't a bonnet release there. There is. There's no clutter. He hated that. He'd get right. into a car and just do that. He had his foibles. There were certain things about a motor vehicle that that were 
they were non-negotiable for him. One was the sort of the cleanness under the steering column, yeah, which yeah, I love. Yeah. There's other story about he, and I don't know whether this is true or not. Um, air conditioning in hotel rooms. He hated air conditioning, so he always carried with him the tools that would that could disconnect <laughs> any air conditioning system in any hotel room. And there's you know <laughs> screwdrivers and spanners and things, so he could turn the thing off. Love it. Um, but yeah, went on to become uh, a very very rich man, and his his you know his last few years at VW were pretty fraught I think and I'm what sure. happened subsequently with Dieselgate was tricky as well but uh, yeah I, I always I think there was a huge respect for his engineering abilities and I would love to go make a film about him in fact my JF my my filmmaking friend from America wants to do it and I, I think I might put some time and money into it because what what a story and what a legacy he left but the people that create those kind of lego le- legacies those kind of products that will be cherished and will continue to have that wow factor for so for so m- much time to come it's the steve jobs effect isn't it it just takes this one visionary guy to do all the extra things the little things that you know like sweeping his hand under the dash to check that there's no clutter on making sure you know it's that yeah you know, Jobs would have said, this isn't just a computer. It doesn't just need to you know, do what a computer does. It needs to look and feel beautiful as well. And whilst we're at it, let's make the packaging beautiful because it, all of the touch points are the things that our customers are experiencing. So let's take care of those details. And it's the same story. It's the same well, he, what, all Pierre the was effectively the person that launched Audi as a brand because Audi was, you know, late 70s, was nowhere. And even into the, even into the 80s, if you drove an Audi... You, what were you saying about yourself? You were saying, I don't really care about cars and I'm not that interested. And the Quattro just exploded onto yeah. the scene and was winning all the group tests in the magazines. And it, it was also cool. It yeah. had immediately launched this brand. And then towards the late 80s, Audi emerged as a, a bit of a yuppie brand, but it still was very much second to third tier behind BMW and Mercedes. And it was the B... I forget my B's. Was it a B5, A4? The, the car from 94, 95 that changed everything with a brilliant advertising campaign that's so ironic now. I don't know if you remember the advert. It was, um, it was a fantastic piece of television advertising where a complete yuppie wanker and he's in his lunch break he's got a brick phone and he's just a bit of a knob and he goes to test drive an A4 and he's just talking about himself I'm, and I'm, I'm, I haven't seen it for ages but this is my recollection of the advert he's talking about himself and as you watch him you just think hateful twat you think you're, you're, you're the plutocratic thing that I hate about yeah, this yeah, world yeah, yeah. and he's in the money markets and he's telling the, sh- he's telling the sales assistant next to him how great he is yeah I'm making a load of money he's basically he's, he's loads of money isn't he <laughs> And he drives this A4 around. He drives this A4 around and he shuts the door at the end and he goes, Nah, it's not for me. And that, it was a clever association. So what Audi was saying was, We're not the, we're yeah. not a BMW. We're not yeah. a Yuppie Wankers yeah. car. And of course, in many respects, Audi's gone on to be the brand that's occupied that space. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so it's, you know, be careful how you write your own history yeah. Yeah, and the yeah. statements you make in the past. Yeah. Because right now, they're probably more that than BMW or Mercedes. Yeah, but yeah. back then, as a piece of advertising, you watched it and went, that's so clever. Yeah, but, but that's, I feel like times have changed and socially it's probably a little bit more, or seem to be more acceptable, isn't it? To be that kind of loud, in your face. I mean, you know, narcissism is everything in the so modern do, world. So do <laughs> modern cars interest you at the moment? Modern, modern supercars and, and all that sort yeah. of stuff? They do, but I'm not. I'm not sort of super geeky on it. I, I've always loved driving. That's always been my thing, and and it's really interesting now that I'm doing a little bit more on the media side and writing a little bit for some of the magazines and doing you know some presenting for Petrolicious and things. That 
I need to learn a bit more about cars. So I've been actually watching a load of your stuff and reading your stuff and Dickie and Andrew Frankel and all these guys. And, and it was fascinating listening to your past pod- podcast where you're referencing old magazines, ones that you've still got in the bog and, you know, you still read that article because that was, you know, I didn't really grow up reading the car magazines. Um, friends would hang on every word that Evo wrote or whatever. And, and I got it, but I loved driving and I loved racing. And um, Sorry about that. The door's open, by the way, but I'm not going to apologise for the wonderful engine yeah. <laughs> <on> the <back. laughs> You're going to have your podcast yeah. disturbed by noise. It might That'll as well be, be a GT40 or whatever well. that was. That was something with four cylinders, yeah. wasn't it? But no, so um, I still would say that I love driving slash racing slightly more than I love cars because to me that's what it's in the end that's what it's all about is that experience it's a very common thing among racing drivers it's quite rare to find racing drivers that really like street cars because they can't understand them they just see them as being utterly flawed if I had this 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 idea when when we had a a website called Drivers Republic years ago um, we um, I wanted to have Phil Bennett you know do you know Phil so PB is a he's a racing driver from 15 20 years ago he's a great guy very very funny individual i mean hugely amusing but he would just get in any road car and just go and i, I will affect my Birmingham accent and go just understeers monkey because <laughs> basically every road car does understeer yeah, they're exactly. designed that way and i wanted to have this regular piece where phil bennett would go on a launch and just come back with the same conclusion about every car. <laughs> so you'd go and drive the Veyron. Phil, what do you think of the Veyron? It understeers. Yeah, and I said, yeah. like, we'd call it the understeer files or something. Yeah, and yeah, he would yeah, just, yeah, he'd yeah. just come back with the Brilliant. same response. Because that, that is the racing driver approach. Yeah. You get into how often do you see, and it's not so bad these days, but quite often a manufacturer would take one of their factory racing drivers and make them drive the, the street car they sold. Yeah. They'd drive punts around the racetrack. And it's a really, not, it used to be a really messy thing to watch because yeah. they couldn't drive it. Because yeah. it was just crap. They couldn't, they couldn't adapt to how crap the road car was, basically. <laughs> Is he still racing, Phil Bennett? No. He, no. he, 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 he trains people in gyrocopters. In fact, Tuttle, no Tuttle and him fly gyrocopters together, which for me is a, the ultimate cluster bomb of danger. I think of, I, of I remember danger. right. When, when you and I did the three-hour race at Spa in the Norma, yeah, he's he there. was racing that weekend in an Audi saloon. Something like that. No, he was in one of those um, yep. silhouette formula... That German, was, it, that was an all, an all, called an all-star, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was a Vauxhall Omega. And he was, he was at the front. Yeah, 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 all, yeah he always yeah, would yeah. be. He's a great driver. He did touring cars for a while, didn't he? He, did, he bought the egg sponsorship That's right. to yes. touring cars. Yeah, and he was brilliant because he was really mouthy and he always got in trouble for what he was, he was saying. Always, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he yeah. just didn't give a monkey. Yeah. I think we used to instruct together up at Palmer Sport or something back in the day. There's an yeah. entire podcast of of Phil Bennett's stories. Yeah. He, he, he will never listen to this, but he knows full well that I've got stories about him that would... <laughs> <laughs> Leave us both incarcerated. Oh, <laughs> but he, he was uh, he was he was magnificent. But um, but no back back to your point. So I do like modern cars. I I love this mental hypercar movement that we've been experiencing for what the last ten twelve years. And there's something really special about that. I'm just sad that until now, ironically, it hasn't been incorporated into the top flight categories of most racing particularly at Le Mans because you've got these crazy looking creations the entire look of which is derived from racetrack functionality so why wouldn't you have a category that accommodates all these manufacturers that actually have a crazy hypercar road cup product to sell so I'm kind of pleased it's moving in that direction now with Le Mans and so on. I mean you've raced prototypes extensively therefore you'll have a different emotional response to the way they look because you view it as when you walk up to it i'm sure you think there's a proper car yeah it's got downforce that works i have a i i think they've i think they've been a part of the problem of 
of endurance racing for a long time because they don't look like cars. They don't look recognisable. And they do to you. You spot the difference yeah. between a Ligier and a what have you. Whereas the rest of us, it's just, it's just an amorphous blob. I th- and I think for, for me... That I love seeing cars that look like cars. I want to yeah. see the GT1 was great for me. And when it when you had a thing that looked a bit like a 911 racing a McLaren racing an F40 yeah. racing a Bugatti or with that, and I hope we get back there. I really do because yeah. I think because I think well, it seems the movement's going. That it's way. going to but, it. And car makers are not going to carry on spending money on stuff that doesn't look like what they sell. I mean, we talk about Audi. I mentioned Audi there with the Quattro. I still think for many for many people what Audi achieved in three, four years on the world rally scene in the early 80s was more powerful for the brand of Audi than anything they did at Le Mans. Because, you. Wow. yeah, because none of those cars look like Audi. They sold them road cars, yeah. See, I, I have a slightly different view, which is that if you show any five-year-old kid that's been exposed or is into racing or not, an Audi, whatever, R18 from 2012 or whatever it was, how can you not be wowed by this sort of spacecraft-like machine. You know, the lovely thing about these closed-roof prototypes of the last eight or so years is that they look like Batmobiles. They and do. that is so important. Yeah. And that whole open-roof spider period that we went through, you know, in the noughties and obviously several decades before that, yeah, it's okay. But when I was racing through that period, I craved a closed-roof prototype. And eventually I got into one. I got into one the one that I thought was the best looking one, which was the Golf liveried Aston Martin only yeah. one car, the, the coupe. And, and to me, that was it. You know, I still can't believe I drove that car. The first day I tested that, I, I just, it was absurd to me that I was about to well, drive Well, you were finally in a Group C after. car, weren't you, basically? Because I think all of That's us... That's it. Yeah, all yeah. of us thought of 962s as yeah. being, that was a sports car, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. You grow up, you know, maybe of our generation. I grew up drawing pictures of, you know, Rothmans liveried Porsche 962s and... And, and that, to me, you know, Sauber, Mercedes, C9, C11, that, to me, was a real racing car. And if it wasn't Formula One, which I was obsessed with, then that was the only other thing that interested me was those prototypes. And you mentioned earlier that there was this period, wasn't there, where GT cars were a bit sort of, and they're sort of, the, the, you know, the, the sort of sore loser. And certainly when I started racing and transitioning from single-seaters into sports cars, I'm ashamed to say now that that is slightly how I thought about it. And... Uh, the first time I ever drove a GT car, I think I mentioned earlier, it was on a blag. And I, I was at Road Atlanta at Petit Le Mans, desperately pounding the paddock, trying to get a drive. And I didn't have one qualifying started. This is you know, quite a big race at the time. I didn't have a seat by the time of qualifying. Then it was into the warm-up. And, uh, and at the last minute, an hour before race day warm-up, the wife of one of the team owners, who I'd made a point of just being nice to for the whole weekend, said... I think you should just put Sam in the car. And it, you, there was this brilliant wife-husband conversation. You know, trying to work out the power dynamic and who actually is making decisions. I think we all know <laughs> where the power lies. <laughs> and I, got, and I, got, I literally got told to get in the car, get your gear on, go out in the warm-up. And I had to say, you know, Sam, have you ever raced at Road Atlanta before? Oh, yeah, yeah. I know it like the back of my hand. Did loads of winter testing here in Barber Dodge back at the day. Never seen it in my life. Sam, have you ever raced... A, a GT car or particularly a Porsche GT3 car like this yeah I have actually done a lot back in the UK um, you know spent quite a lot of time at the wheel like, never set a foot in anything <laughs> other than a prototype or a single seater and I went out on my outlap it was pouring with rain by the way can you imagine the luck you know being great baking, circuit so though great circuit great circuit but didn't, didn't know it came out of that chicane the penultimate corner you're going up that steep hill yeah. blind crest 
which I assume just went straight up the hill it's and then straight right down. At the end of it. It's a significant right-hand <laughs> kink as you appear over that crest. And I was fully lit in the wet in this thing, which to me felt like a boat because I'd had no experience of GT cars. And I, to this day, have no idea how I got around that corner, but I did. And I went on to race and you know, somebody else crashed and that, that was us done. But it was... At the time, like, oh, get me back in a single seat or a prototype, please. This <laughs> is horrible. Must have felt pretty lazy yeah. after that stuff. Yeah, but these days, GT cars don't feel like that, do they? You know, you'll know better than me now. What's the modern GT cars? They're very, they're like, pretty amazing know. things. Yeah, they're incredible. They're, they're aerodynamically sensitive. They've, they're, they're proper racing cars. Prototype levels of performance yeah. in some ways. You know, you've got more weight. But, but the aero's, the, the aero's very well balanced. They've got, you know, they got, they, de- they develop proper downforce. They're probably like a GT1 car was. Five six years ago, or longer, whenever they were racing them, G- it's not far off. GT, yeah, th- they are a bit. So funny enough, one of the cars I never got to race, but so wanted to was an Aston Martin DBR9 GT1 car. That's and the one. That is the one, and that the along noise, with the, the Ferrari 550 things, Maranello, those two for me. Well, hold on, hasn't Max? Still, hasn't Max still got, got one? Yeah, Max. Should, Max should. is under a lot of pressure from me to. Yeah, he needs to go on that. Right. Yeah. So we, well, just before we wrap up here. Um, I want to ask you one thing. So you've got not a massive budget, Sam, but you've got a reasonable budget and you've got to buy one car for yourself to go and compete in. It's a a historic racing car Um, and it's got to be, you know, eligible, but, you know, you can't have a short wheelbase, okay? What what car would you have? What would be the one that you'd like to have that's usable? Can I get a bit of clarity on the question because it's a brilliant question, but is it for me or is it for a general driver? No, it's for you personally. personally, What sort of budget? Um, let's say you've got £250,000, which obviously sounds awful to our listeners. In this world, is is catering budget. It's embarrassing to say, but it's, that's that's hardly even entry level. I know. Well, if you need to use it as a deposit, we can finance the rest over right. five years. Okay. <laughs> I, I might take you up he, on that. You yeah, love exactly. it as well. But you can buy something for two fifty to go. And I've got, I, 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 yeah. I, know, I know what I would probably aim for, but you, you tell me what you'd aim for at that budget. Uh, good question. See, I would always gravitate back towards the fastest, purest car I can think of, single-seater. And, um, for, you know, if, you, if we were having this conversation three years ago, I'd have said, get me, I don't care, any dog of a historic Formula One car yeah. that's eligible. Thought you might say At the that. time, it would have been something like a Fittipaldi or whatever. What about an Ensign? Can you still get an Ensign now for 250 You know what? You might be able to, actually. Yeah, with a DFV, eligible for... The Masters FIA Historic Formula One, eligible for Monaco Historic, which to this day, despite all the modern Le Mans type stuff I've been lucky enough to race, racing a Formula One car at Monaco in the Historic is hands down the best racing or driving experience I've had ever, and I'll probably never beat it. Um, I would spend every penny of that and come to you, Ed, for some financing <laughs> to buy whatever it was I could buy to get as long on as the got, grid. As long as it's got a DFE in it, you're Give happy. Give me a DFE and single-seater, and I'm happy forever. So I, I would go on, a, I think it's a great answer, and it's true to what you want to do and the driving you want. I just, for me, the two cars, and they're probably just falling out of that price bracket. I still think you could probably get a Ropey 911 for that. You yeah. could get a, a 65 car, and I love driving them, and they're so eligible, because you can also do road events, which would be interesting. And I think, an Alpha, could you get an Alpha GTA for that money yet? Or have they gone 250, you, no, I mean, you, you, you could get, get one. one. You're not going to get one with, with period race history, auto, auto Delta, and da-da-da-da. That's now, it's unfathomable, isn't it, to say that that starts at 400 grand now. Mm. But what, 
I, mean, yeah. I can't. Yeah. I hate to say it. I, I, it but there's lots of cars on those grids that don't cost that much. You know, a, a, sure. a, a little you, teaser or something like that. You know, they're. I, te- I mean, a teaser. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm biased here because I sold one last year. But you know, for me, that's the bargain of the century yeah. because they're so rare. I think they only made 150 and proper to teasers. They're brilliant to drive, but the first time I was very kindly invited to share with Adrian Van Hoydonk, um, who I think has come under a bit of a hard time from you a lot about the size of his front grille design on the modern BMWs. <laughs> but he's a lovely guy, and um, and we're good mates. And he he invited me to share his BMW 1800 teaser last year here at the Revival, and I'd never done the um, what's it called the, the St Mary's Trophy before, yeah, yeah. and not done that, and not had that tin top experience. And the first time I pulled out the pit lane on a test, I just, I just sighed. And I was like, oh, this is so crap. <laughs> this is, and the Slow, car just yeah. felt like a tin can. And there was no grunt. You could have got out and pushed it faster. Until it comes on cam in the final thousand revs. And it wakes up and it comes alive. And then you think, okay, now, now we're moving a bit. But the first two, three laps, you're still using the brakes. No, no, no. Don't oh. use the brakes. Yeah. And basically don't lift and and the speed that i realize you can carry through the corner you just sort of put it up over the curb slightly on two wheels this beautifully easy balanced four-wheel drift and it was one of the most fun things yeah, brilliant. i've brilliant. ever done on it's like that mini with the low power cars around here that mini i drove you, you, you know you you don't you brake at the chicane yeah and then the next time you touch the brake yeah is the is the left at St Mary's but even then it's just a brush it's yeah. not a stop no. it's just a it's a suggestion to get the car turned yeah for the, that left the brake pedal becomes a sort of a, a direction changing tool rather yeah. than a deceleration tool. And, and weirdly the muscle memory of driving the car I don't know about you but during the race you know you're probably bracing yourself with your left leg anyways you're bracing the left leg yeah. and your right leg's just furiously at the throttle yeah. at times your foot says where is the brake? <laughs> yeah, you, know, you sometimes find it, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. down the back straight, I sometimes yeah. have a little, I get my left foot off the brake just to check. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's there. Yeah. Because you, you, you so infrequently use it yeah, that you, yeah, you forget where it is. Do you get this thing, I've noticed it lately, it's really weird and it's a bit scary. Do you get this slightly like lazy foot syndrome where you almost can't be bothered to get off the throttle? Yeah, yeah. It's a weird thing. But, but also, when you get very confident in a car's handling, yeah. you do, you think, well, what would happen? Yeah. And, you're, and, you're just, <laughs> and you'll just leave it pinned. Yeah. Because you know, because quite often these old cars have got such a lovely on-limit behaviour yeah. that you know nothing too spiteful is going to happen if yeah. it's too fast. So you just think, well, I'll stick with it. Yeah. And then you, and, and yeah, you're quite right. You just think, well, I'll just leave it there. I, went, I often wonder, you know that uh, Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours to achieve mastery at any particular pursuit concept. I wonder if at the ripe old age of 39, having done this for 30 years, if I'm if I'm finally getting up to that point where you know, whilst I will always evade mastery by a million miles, it's it's something you just get you reach a comfort level with, and it starts to slow down a little bit, and then you start to think, okay, I mean, there's still quick cars that you know scare the life out of me, but a lot of the historic stuff just starts to feel a bit slower and very comfortable and. It's just this, I don't know, I find myself just a bit lazy getting off the throttle. You're in the matrix mode, aren't you? You can sort of see it all happening in front of you. What I find find very interesting is if I spend a lot of time driving historic cars, I become quite sniffy about new cars. Right. And I I celebrate everything about them. And I, I love the way they move. I love the way they communicate. I love the sound, the look. Everything about them is more appealing than a modern racing car. Yeah. And, and, and you actually, and they flatter you and you start to drive them okay and they slide around and you, th- and you think, oh, I'm, I'm all right at this. Yeah. And then you jump in a GT3 car 
and it hammers you. Yeah. Because it it's so unforgiving. A modern racing car with a with a spec tire yeah. is an unforgiving beast, and you're and the margins on which you're judged are so much finer. Yeah. And it's I I actually think it's a really good thing to get in new cars yeah. quite regularly, Definitely. just to remind yourself that that there's a, an accuracy level in a new car that is completely missing in an old car. Yeah. You know, you can make. In an E-Type here, you can make four or five mistakes a lap, and it might even it might cost you a tenth. Yep. It really won't have a profound effect on the lap yep. time. But in a modern racing car, if you d- if you did that, you'd be you'd lose a second probably. Well, in Blancpain, you you know that's the difference between being in the top ten or outside the top fifty. Yeah, you, know, you just get you just get hammered. But but I, I I do love the just the the options under power in yeah. these old racing cars. It's just, I mean here. The first, we haven't been here for ages. You come here a lot more than me, but you come over to start finish straight for the first time at Goodwood and you've got that right-hander at Madrid. Yeah. The first time you just, you just you just suggest the thing right and then you go over the lump and then it just starts yeah, to oversteer on the moving, exit yeah. and you just think, this is fantastic. Yeah. So it is. And, but the, and, and the lovely thing about that is the people on the grass bank watching on the outside <sighs> as you drive through Madrid can see what you're experiencing and loving. Yeah. Yeah. But in a GT3 car, that skill set that you've just described is... Invisible. I would argue, actually, it's, it's, it's even harder to achieve, maybe but a lot harder to achieve, but it's invisible to the spectator, and that's a real shame. It is, and, it, and there's no fix for that. And, there's no, and there's, sadly, there's no appreciation for some of the precocious talent that's out there, because yeah. it's, it's, it's not easy to see. The way that they work the balance of performance, yeah. you know, a, a really good driver will, will do me by a second a lap, but yeah. to the naked eye, that's not much. Yeah. But I can tell you, I can't do what they do. Yeah. And, and sadly... They're judged on making fewer mistakes. That's yeah. the way it works in modern motorsport, isn't it? Because everyone knows what the car's capable of, yeah. and most people can get very close to it. But they just do it lap after lap yeah. after lap, and you just see them in the rearview mirror. I was—I can remember vividly being down at Ricard this year and just being this thing creeping up on me, and yeah. I'm thinking, it can't be catching me. What are me you at that doing rate. that I'm not doing? What yeah. are you doing? Yeah. And then they just creep away from it, and you watch their—you know—their positioning of the car is just that much better. They're just, yeah. They just—they are better drivers than you. I know. I, I have this conflicting desire. I miss modern cars, modern racing so much, and I'm desperate to get back behind the wheel of something. But at the same time, I'm conflicted in that because. I pretty much know I'm going to get found out very, very quickly. <laughs> and um, well, they're, they're also they're 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 young. We're not, you know, yeah. you can't forget that we're yeah, age yeah. ravaged now, and they and they're in them so often. It's all about seat time. Yeah, you'll find between races they've had, you know, ten days in a sim or doing this and that. And we've, you know, I've been in the pub. Frankly, I, <laughs> I had a really illuminating conversation with Stuart Hall, who's a professional racing driver, mate of mine, and he's done a lot in modern racing. Very, very quick driver, and he. Um, slightly suffers what many pros that coach do, which is you don't really get much seat time. And this year, the guy he's coaching is doing GT3. And so on the one hand, it's brilliant for him. And he was saying, I just love being back in modern racing. Love the intensity. I love the cars. But Christ, we were at Paul Ricard. And I went out and I thought I strung together a pretty good lap. I was 1.3 seconds off pole or whatever it was. But I was 52nd on the grid. And it's like, Jesus. No, the the margins are... Uh, the margins are are difficult to comprehend, but but they that's what they should be. Right, um, I think we'll draw that one to a close. There, it's been fascinating speaking to you um, and and Edward as well. So one thing we w- want to announce there, um, I'm I'm quite busy bloke, and Edward's quite busy bloke as well. Uh, and I apologise for the frequency of these. That when we started doing this, Edward said, "We'll make it." This is my impression of Edward. We're going to make it weekly, and I said, "No, we won't, because it's impossible. Because I just haven't got the time." Well, we will. Well, I'm sure we'll make it happen, but it hasn't been weekly, and I apologise. And it probably won't be weekly going forwards, but it's still a nice free thing for you guys to enjoy but I can't do them all because I'm running around a bit and I thought and Edward thought that Sam is the perfect person 
to, to the take only one of the three that yeah. is not busy. Yeah. To take, no, no, he's not. He's busy, but he's but he's a bit more UK based. He's, he's got a face for radio. Yeah. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I knew someone was going to say. So, so Sam is going to take the reins when I'm not about, uh, and then and that'll help us just broaden the subject material a bit, and and we'll discover help discover some more people you've never heard of and some other great stories. So. Um, I look forward to, that's not, not mean I'm going away, I'm still going to be doing loads, but um, with Sam's input as well, I think we can do more, um, but that's been really great talking to you, so best of luck um, with whoever you talk to, and I'm sure we'll, we'll do double headers with another victim as well at some point. I better get another mic. Yeah, you better buy another yeah. microphone. So um, uh, Before we go. Yeah, before we go. It's got to, I've got to do a plug. Go on then. First of all, uh, next week when this goes live, so whatever it is, the... 4th or 5th of um, September. Yeah. Uh, there'll be a few days left of a Chevrolet Camaro Z28 on our auction platform, www.collectingcars.com. Um, Chris, what is a Z28 like? Z28, it's a great car. Particularly fine example, that one. Uh, two owners, uh, second of which was uh, someone called Chris Harris from, uh, from the Bristol area. <laughs> so um, that, that particular vehicle is, I love it but I haven't got a place for it at the moment. I've got a few cars. I've done, I intended to do no miles on it at all. I, I bought it with 200 miles on the clock three years ago. It's done 7,000 now. Uh, it is an unrepeatable car. But anyone that's sniffy about American muscle cars and what they're capable of on a track needs to drive that thing. It's got so much character as well. So what, what I, I drove one in 2014. GM bought one over here. Um, this is an amazing end to the podcast. He starts another story. Um, That's right. but, but very quickly, that GM bought one over, and I was a bit sniffy about it because it had done a, the usual Nürburgring lap time, and I just thought it was a load of crap. And the, the, the base car was so average. It was basically a Pontiac that had been purloined from a Holden. It was basically a Monaro shell. And I just, I just thought, I'm tired of this. This is rubbish. And we had a 997 GT3 RS, which I got along, just to demonstrate how, how far off the Americans were. And the Camaro was probably more fun on the day I couldn't believe how good it was wow. so they used the, they used the buying power of GM to buy a parts set that you couldn't get unless you had that buying power so it's got full Brembo ceramic brakes it's got massive wheels they had an understeer issue so they just stuck a 305 section front tyre on it so it turns in like nothing else wow. means it tramlines a bit on UK roads <laughs> um, but it's got an LS7 and it's got a 7 litre motor which is unstressed. We've got some titanium bits in there, so it revs to seven, but it's done by about six two really in terms of power. But it's got a manual gearbox, three pedals, four seats, ceramic brakes, and it's trackable. There is no other car that can do that. So, you know, literally last year, I did drop my kids off at school, go and do a track day, spend a day driving around the UK and collect them again. You can't do that in any other car. Um, and, I, and it's most muscle cars you have to apologize for because they're actually crap dynamically but they're dripping with character the z28 has got the muscle car character but dynamically stacks up yeah wow. it tramlines a bit and the interior looks like it was made by a four-year-old all the usual stuff but it's a really interesting car and if, if you're into interesting cars and you like to get noticed because god does it get some attention then it's um it's worth looking at and i'm and obviously i'm involved in this collecting cars thing and i just thought it'd be great to stick it on the website and see see if anyone wants to buy it well thank you plug over okay um and uh we'll see you soon thank you very much sam thank you Edward. thanks, thanks for having you. me cheers oh. 
Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code presson25 at checkout for 25% off impress manicure and presson falsies. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.